Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 17. Have you ever really been intimidated? There are different ways in which we can become, but I will never forget the first experience I had in the paint with the Giants. Now, those of you who know basketball language would understand when I speak of being in the paint. That's when you go under the boards. That's when you get into that refined or defined area, that constricted area close to the basket. Now, when you're only six feet tall, which is what I am, and you're in there with people who are much bigger than you, it can become very intimidating. But I used to play point guard, and I used to be the one who was responsible for getting the ball into the paint or driving it in there myself. Now, when I was a pastor of a church in Philadelphia, we had... Um, uh, our ministry was basically on the streets. I decided to uh, form a basketball team. And we would go around and visit different churches. And one of the large suburban white churches outside of Philadelphia figured they were going to do something real nice for this inner city church. And they were going to invite us to come to their facilities. They had a beautiful gymnasium. And they invited us to come and compete in a series of games against them. Now, I was the white kid on the team. Actually, I was the playing coach on the team. I will never forget the first time we played these guys. First game, referees, the whole scoreboard, the whole nine yards, and uh, they beat us. I will never forget, it was 100, the score was 102 to 92. They beat us. Uh, we had a little prayer meeting afterwards, had some fellowship afterwards. We left and we came back for the next game. Everybody was fine up to that point. The second game, we came back and we beat them. Nobody spoke to us after the game was over. There was no prayer meeting. There was obvious hostility. They didn't like the fact that they got beat. They invited us back for the, the third game. Now, I was the coach of the team. You've got to understand that. And I, I figured no matter how they acted, we were going to act the right way. We were always going to be courteous. We were going to always keep our witness in place. We were not going to lose our tempers. And as that game unfolded, it was clear this was war. And uh, during one of the timeouts that I called, uh, my young men came up to me and they, they used to call me PB, short for Pastor Betters. PB, it's getting rough out there. You gotta let us play. And I said, you're not gonna lose your witness that way. We went back into the game and it was clear they were in cahoots with the referees and they were going to foul out our number one player. We went through that whole first half and it got rougher and rougher and rougher and the boys I was playing with got quieter and quieter as we called these timeouts. I stole the ball from a guy and uh, I dribbled down the other end and I went into the paint up against this guy that was about 6'7 or 6'8. And as I went up for the shot, he took an elbow to my throat. Elbowed me right in the center of my Adam's apple. Got to the sidelines, the boys kind of stood around me looking like no sense talking to him anymore. 
I said, kill. <laughs> and they killed. We were never invited back to that church again. But have you ever been in the paint with a giant? Have you ever been intimidated that way? I've entitled this message, Scorched in the Paint, because I believe this is David's first scorch mark. Remember what we mean by scorch marks? Those divine invasions. When God interrupts the flow of your life, you're heading in one direction, and then suddenly, like a hot iron, God impresses on you that your life is not about you, it's about His glory, and you're heading north, and He says, now you're going to go south. Or you're heading west, and he says, now you're going to go east. This is David's first scorch mark. He had to go into the paint up against the giants. Now, I want you to see in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Samuel 17, a description of the enemy. Uh, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched a tent or camp at Ephes Damin between Soko and Azela. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Now that's a mistranslation. The NIV did not capture this. When you actually study the measurements and some of the earlier manuscripts on this, actually Goliath was close to 11 feet, four inches tall. Now you need to understand, that's pretty big. Uh, the champion, was, uh, his name was Goliath. He was uh, over nine feet tall. No matter which of those two standards of measure you use, it doesn't matter whether he was nine feet or 11 feet, four inches, the man was big. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, the Philistines heard that Samuel had left Saul. The priest had left Saul that Saul had grown functionally depressed and that their God had forsaken him. So Saul was kind of in this bipolar, manic depressive or just plain insane state of mind uh, because Samuel had withdrawn his blessing and the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16 that an evil spirit tempted him or tormented him. See an evil spirit, verse 15 of 1 Samuel 16, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Now it was the common belief in that day that if you had some sort of mental disorder, music, appropriate music could calm you down. That if you had this kind of manic depressive or bipolar or just plain insane disorder, music could resolve some of the issues. It could calm you down. It would make you feel better. And so they found someone, verse 17, 
Find someone who plays well and bring him to me, one of the servants answered. I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, and he knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. In other words, his music will be good to listen to, and he's not so bad to look at. So he calls for David. Send me your son David, verse 19, who is with the sheep. So David took a, Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, sent them uh, with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul, entered his service. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, that's that evil spirit, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now listen closely. Many scholars believe, by the way, that David never existed. Did you know that? Many liberal scholars believe David never even existed. That uh, when the Israelites were put into captivity with Babylon, that the life of David and the story of Goliath and all that other stuff was fabricated in order to give the people some hope that they had a heritage, that they used to be a great people. And so this, this character of David, some of the liberal scholars say, was fabricated. Well, in 1993, archaeological digs were made. And some of the archaeological digs that date back to 150 years after the Bible says David lived reference the line of David, reference the reign of David, reference that the Syrian kings actually killed some of the kings that came from the line of David. Scholars haven't known what to do with that since then. But the liberal mind says this never happened. The liberal mind says this couldn't have happened. In fact, how could somebody be 11 feet 4 inches tall? How could somebody be that tall? Uh, and yet we continue to unveil non-biblical sources and resources that speak of people that are 9, 10, and 11 feet tall. Somehow or another, we accept them from extra-biblical sources, but when the Bible speaks of it, we say, well, it has to be fabricated. Well, this is how the enemies of the church act. The enemies of the church and the enemies of the gospel are vigilant to invade when they know that the protectors... Those who are responsible for protecting the sheep have provoked God's spirit and the prophets to leave them. It happens all the time. I deal with churches all the time where the leaders have fallen. Where those responsible for protecting the sheep and protecting the, the flock have fallen. And, and no sooner do those, those protectors fall, Satan seems to move in because the hedge is down. When God's blessing is withdrawn from a family, or God's blessing is withdrawn from a church or an individual, Satan knows that. And when those who are supposed to protect and provide and care for those who are under their authority fall and grieve God, then, then the whole flock is open and subject to incredible satanic attack. That's exactly what happened here. Saul had fallen. The Philistines knew that Saul had fallen. And now they provoke Israel into a war. Now, Goliath was one of the sons of Anak, A-N-A-K, from the town of Gath. Now, in the mouths of at least three witnesses, this herd of giants is mentioned in Scripture. First by Moses. Moses in Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 22 says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. 
They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. Now, they were the descendants of Anak that came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So Moses says, all the way back in Numbers chapter 13, all the way back years before David even existed, we knew of these giants. Joshua, in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, references the Anakites. He says, no Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, that's where Goliath was from, and Ashdod, did any of these giants survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. So now we have Moses referencing the giants, we have Joshua referencing the giants, and here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I believe he was exactly 11 feet, 4 inches tall. His spear was huge. His legs were covered with impenetrable brass. His shield was carried out in front of him, not in order to protect him because there was nowhere you could hit him but his legs. The armor that he wore was such that the only place that was even vulnerable was the bottom part of his forehead, probably no more than an inch or a quarter of an inch of exposed skin. The armor bearer went out in front of him not to protect him, but to show him off. Kind of like carrying an insignia. Kind of like carrying this emblem of pride. Goliath, according to the, this is interesting, according to the Chaldean paraphrase of 1 Samuel 17, when you study the Chaldean paraphrase of this passage, it tells you a little story that our Bible does not give you that may or may not be true. It tells you that Goliath took responsibility for killing the two sons of Eli. Remember, Eli was the first priest. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were corrupt. And so God put a curse on Eli's household, and Hophni and Phinehas were captured and killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines from Israel. It was Goliath who claimed credit for doing that. He felt he was the one that that killed these two boys, that he was the one responsible for pilfering the ark, but he never got the recognition. And so he was jealous of Saul because Saul had become a king. He wondered why he hadn't become a king. Now, I don't know how true that is, but the Chaldean paraphrase has that little twist to this story. He seemed to have been greatly dismayed over the fanfare of Saul's anointing to the kingship, and he was equally angered by the fact that he was not the king of, Philist uh, of, the, of the Philistines. In other words, we have this 11 foot 4 inch giant seething with anger, jealousy, and pride. It's a tough giant to face, isn't it? How about a broken relationship you are powerless to change? You've done everything you know to do, and it has emotionally nearly destroyed you. You're involved in some sort of broken relationship, someone you love, someone you thought loved you, and it's a big giant, and you can't seem to change their mind. You can't seem to get them to see your hurt. And everyone else around you has advice for you, but no one can really make you feel any better, can they? 
What about the fear of failure? What about the fear of the future? What about the sense of outrage at unfair treatment you might be experiencing? What emotional giant are you facing? What about some of you who are facing physical giants? Heart disease, cancer, chronic pain. There are people in our church who experience chronic pain. They're always in pain physically. People who have some crippling diseases, they just have to keep going on smiling. When their bones are aching and their muscles are sore and their backs are out of joint and their necks are frozen and, and the, the headaches continue and whatever, those chronic pain people and the doctors can't seem to do a thing, big physical giants. What does your spiritual giant look like? Maybe a life-dominating sin that continually drags you into the mud, continually makes you feel alienated from your God. How about faithlessness when you should have faith and you don't? How about spiritual fatigue? Have you ever been spiritually fatigued? Your spirit just says, I don't want to do this anymore. I just quit. You know, intimidation can be very paralyzing. But you will not find in this story a single ounce of intimidation in David as he faces this giant. You will not find him at all intimidated. In fact, what, what, what impresses you as you read this story, what ought to impress you as you read this story, is the fact that David can't figure out why no one else in the army was, un, was, was, was unwilling to take on Goliath. His intimidation, if any, was with his brothers and Saul and the others around him, scratching his head wondering, why aren't any of you taking this man on? But he wasn't intimidated by the giant. So clearly we have to ask the question, what was his secret? How do you go into the paint among the trees with confidence and with courage? Well, your starting point, hold your place there, your starting point clearly has to be a principle that Jesus taught. Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 21. How do you go into the paint among the trees without intimidation? Look with me at Luke chapter 11. Jesus mentions in just two verses what I believe is an earth-shattering principle. He says in verse, 11, in verse 21 of Luke 11, when a strong man, Luke 11, 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Now, I believe in this passage, Jesus is talking about a strong man and a stronger man. The strong man is Satan. The stronger man is Jesus. Remember what I've said before. Please do not understand theologically that we have these two systems running through our, our world today, this system of good and this system of, of evil, and they're warring against each other, and who's ever stronger at the moment wins. 
You have one system. You have the system of the sovereignty of God. God is a holy God. God is an awesome God. He is not in this battle against Satan, good against evil, and, and we don't know what the outcome looks like. Satan was defeated on the cross. The victory has already been won. Satan is nothing more, nothing less than a lackey to Jesus. Fundamentally, he is the strong man who has been defeated by the stronger man. Now that's where your intimidation has to end. That's where the issues have to begin. You have to stop and you have to think to yourself, look at me, you have to stop and you have to think to yourself, who is the strong man? Who is the giant? What is the giant that I'm facing? And who is the stronger one who has defeated the strong or intimidating force in your life? The victory's already been won. That's your beginning point. Go back to 1 Samuel 17, look with me at verse 8. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. By the way, there's nobody sitting on the side of Israel that believed that he would ever follow through with that promise. If Goliath had been defeated, or if Goliath had, uh, had been defeated, there is no conceivable way Israel believed that the Philistines would surrender. And clearly when he was defeated, they didn't. They ran. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Let me tell you something. The enemy terrifies and the enemy taunts. Whether it's a physical giant, an emotional giant, a spiritual giant, whatever you're facing, whatever giant you have to go into the paint, and experience face-to-face, -face, I assure you that enemy will terrify you and that enemy will taunt you. He taunts and he throws down the gauntlet. Now the first question I have is where was Saul? This is the leader. Where was Saul? He was that tall, dark, and handsome leader that everybody thought, this is the image we want in our king. This is the guy we want to lead us. Remember, they cried for a king. He's sitting there in need of Prozac. <laughs> he doesn't know up from down, east from west. He's sitting there with his tail tucked between his legs. Where was Saul? Where was Jonathan? Saul's son. Earlier, we read about Jonathan almost single-handedly defeating an army of Philistines. Jonathan goes out. He was a brave, courageous soldier. Where was he? What about David's brothers? Tall, dark, handsome, and yellow. Where were they? Where was Eliab? What about Abner, the captain of the army, who is called in Scripture a valiant man, impotent, powerless? 
Let me tell you something, friends. The best and the bravest men are all but cowards unless God renews their strength. The Spirit of God had departed from Saul and it rested on David. The best Saul could muster was brief respites between attacks from evil spirits. This goes on for 40 days while they watch. 40 days. Now, the number 40 in Scripture is often used to speak of a period of testing. Israel was being tested. You know, oftentimes what God will do is God will deliver us over to our enemies so that we can come to an end to ourselves. This is exactly what God is doing here. No one, including David, would be able to take the credit for this, for this defeat of Goliath. It was clear that the odds were stacked against them. The number 40 is often used as that period of testing. So for 40 days, God's doing two things. He's ripening Goliath for judgment, and he's ripening Saul for judgment on the one hand. And on the other hand, he is preparing David for his first scorch mark inside the paint. God had two things in mind. Judgment on Goliath, judgment on Saul, and blessing and power and preparation on David for the work of kingship he would call him to. Well, a giant killer needs preparation. Look at verse 12. I want to give you what I believe are the preparatory steps God used in David's life to get him ready to face this giant. Look at verse 12 and following. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning, every evening, and took his stand. Now, I want to tell you what the first step is in preparation for killing giants. You're going to find it tucked away in verse 15. I want you to read it again very closely. It says, but David, notice the word but there, in contrast, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I want to give you a principle. A man willing to enter the paint with the giants knows that humility is the conduit of grace. Humility is the conduit of grace. Why in the world would David leave the prestigious position of one of Saul's armor bearers and as his chief musician to expose himself to foot and mouth disease among dirty sheep? Why would he do that? Our greatest preparation for spiritual warfare and the strength necessary to win those battles are cultivated solely in the intimacy and solitude of our relationship to Christ. That's where humility is born. That's where humility is bathed. That's where humility is birthed. That's where humility becomes the conduit of God's grace. He didn't pat himself on the back and say, my, my, look at the position I hold. I am the king's chief musician. I sing to him. And look at the applause I get when I sing. I have such a wonderful voice. 
I play such wonderful music and the king who's a nutcase becomes sane again when I sing to him. And besides that, he likes me so much, he made me one of his armor bearers. Oh no. Oh no, that's not a man after God's own heart. The man after God's own heart leaves all of that and goes back and cleans the sheep pen, goes back and cleans the sheep's toilets. This is a man who was willing to go back to his roots, back to his father's house, and be that eighth son. Be that youngest son who wasn't even worthy in his father's eyes to be brought into this parade before Samuel so that Samuel could anoint him. This is the little ruddy guy. This is the one who was willing to see that humility and servanthood is the key to greatness and the conduit of God's grace. And that brings me to the second point, verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain, these ten loaves of bread for your brothers. Hurry to their camp. Now we already know what his father thought of him. Now the only thing on his father's mind are the warriors that have gone to war with Saul. Those brothers are important. You're just a sheep herder. So here, son, I need you to go take some supplies to your brothers, who are the real soldiers here. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are doing. Bring back some assurance from them. I want to know how the boys are doing. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. No, they weren't. They were in the valley, but they weren't fighting with the Philistines. They were wetting their pants while the Philistines were talking. They were sitting there with their tails tucked between their legs. Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd loaded and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistine were drawing up their lines facing each other. Now, by, the, by this time, by the way, 40 days of this stuff was going on. All they were doing was yelling at each other. On one side, Israel's yelling at them. On the other side, everybody was shouting the war cry, but nobody was fighting. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. You know, just as a man willing to enter the paint needs to understand that facing giants requires humility, and humility is the conduit of God's grace. So also a man willing to enter the paint with the giants believes that the heart of a servant is the key to greatness. You don't hear one word from David here to his father. Well, what about me, Dad? What about me? I mean, I'm, I'm playing music for the king. Aren't you going to recognize that? I can't tell you how many men and women in this church have told me that they grew up with a father who never recognized any of their achievements. Always recognized others' achievements, but never recognized their own. Never, never patted you on the back and said, my, my, what a wonderful job you're doing. That's David. That's David. At some point along the way, you have to recognize that your master was treated the same way. Your God was treated the same way. He came unto his own, his own received him not. The whole time they received him not, he girded the servant's apron. He wore the apron of a servant. You need to minister to the very people who do not recognize and acknowledge you. You need to gird the servant's apron 
and acknowledge those who do not even acknowledge you. Thirdly, I believe a man willing to enter the paint with the giant believes that the wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. Look at verses 23 and following. I love this. This is not what you think it is, by the way. Saul did not pull out his own armor and put it on David. He pulled out armor from his supply and says there as he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, verse 23, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So all the yelling and screaming stopped. Here comes Goliath, 11 feet, 4 inches tall. All the yelling and screaming stops. Everybody runs for cover. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give. Here's the foolishness of God, the wisdom of man. Here it is. We're going to make a deal with you. King Saul, tall, dark, handsome, and yellow, has made a deal with any soldier who is willing to go out and do battle with Goliath and, and square off with him and deal with this taunt once and for all. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him a great big tax cut. That's what he says. No more taxes for you. And also, I got this gorgeous daughter. I will give her to you in marriage. You will be exempt from family taxes for the rest of your life, and you get my daughter. Now, there's a leader for you. There's a guy who knows how to set an example. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated what had been said. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. What drove David was not what was in it for him. Notice his language was for the glory of God. He wasn't after a tax cut. He wasn't looking for stock options. He wasn't looking to improve his 401k plan. David's passion was to enter the paint, not to be seen of men, or even to receive the awards and accolades of men. His passion was the glory of God. How can this uncircumcised Philistine taunt the God of Israel? How can he stand against our God and defy him that way? That's how you need to view your enemies. You need to hate the sin, whether it be in your own life or someone else's life, because it destroys a clear vision of the holiness of your God. Because it's not about you. It never is. It's about the glory of the God your enemies are defying. It's his reputation in you that's at stake. That's what drove David, fourthly. A man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes he must not be dissuaded by the armchair, armchair critics. They're always there, by the way. The murmurers and the complainers are always there when you are beginning to ask these kinds of questions as you square off in the paint. Why are you going in there? Where is your God? Look at verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, or asked, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Notice, few sheep in the desert. You measly little shepherd boy. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. 
None of that was true. We've already been told in Scripture he had integrity of heart. You've come down here only to watch the battle. You're here to watch. You're just a spectator. Notice David says, now what have I done? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. You see, the man of God must be ready and willing to be misinterpreted and to stand alone. When you enter the paint against the giants, you have to be willing to be misinterpreted and stand alone. He does not defend himself. We ought not to answer our critics. He does not revile when he was reviled. He simply walks away from his critics. He silences them with silence. It is even more intriguing, these taunts come not from his enemies, but from his own brothers. What a glorious picture this is. Because we remember, David is a picture, an archetype of Jesus. Do you know that his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his two sisters, at least two sisters, probably had more who are not named in Scripture, his six brothers and sisters, and his mother, his mother Mary, his four brothers, and at least his two sisters, one day stood outside of the place where he was preaching and sent word to him because they thought he lost his mind. You've gone over the edge. And he made that wonderful statement in Scripture, who is my mother and who are my brothers? But they that do the will of my Father in heaven. Even his own family thought he had gone over the edge. Now eventually they all came back and became some of the staunch leaders of the early church. But at least at some point in their lives, they were the armchair critics saying, this giant is too big, you've crossed the line. Have you had people like that in your life? I've had them. I've had them. Fifthly, and I'll make this the last point for this part, a man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes that the skills and gifts necessary to kill a giant are honed listen, are honed in the mundane and lonely places of his day-to-day -day life. Look at verses 32 to 37. David honed specific skills in the sheepfold that would later be used to slay a giant. He says in verses 32 to 37, when he stands before Saul, let no one lose heart on the count of these Philistines. I'll go and fight them. Your servant will, Saul replied. You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been fighting men from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Notice how David keeps referring to himself in relationship to Saul. Your servant, your servant, your servant. He'd already had it whispered in his ear by Samuel, you will be the king. But he refers to himself as the servant. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and kill it, killed it. You watch these Middle Eastern boys when they get mad. A lot of hot blood runs through us. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, the uncircumcised Philistine. He'll be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. It was away from the crowds in the solace of pastoral life that David was taught the wondrous resources which are there and available to him through his God by faith. There in the fields of Bethlehem, he learned by the power of God how to slay lions and how to slay bears. This is always God's way. He teaches us in secret that soul that he has elected to serve him in public. Does this not explain our failures? Have we sufficiently cultivated the secret places of the Most High God? That is our most fundamental need. That is the beginning point of our battle strategy. Get into the closet. Get alone and intimate with your God. That is where the great battlefield of faith is birthed. Those day-to-day -day mundane experiences. And I always wondered when I was in college, especially after I became a Christian in my junior year, and I was taking courses like physics and organic chemistry and microbiology and all those other things, I, I oftentimes, what, is, what, a, what a waste this is. Calculus. What in the world am I taking this stuff for? Uh, I'm not going to ever use that stuff. I'm going into the ministry. I'm never going to use that stuff. It seems to be a waste of my time. And yet, in those very disciplines, I learned how to think. And the most important thing a pastor needs to know is how to think. How to get the whole picture. How to have a vision. When I got to seminary, I saw those preparations that God had been making all along with those courses that were so hard, so difficult, so tough how he prepared me to think as a systematic theologian, how to read scripture. I remember going to the English Bible professor, my first, I was the only Christian for a year. I went to Dr. Baker and I said to him, I'm lost. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what a patriarch or a matriarch is. I have no idea, old and new. What are you talking about here? I'm sitting in class with these guys that have been to Bible colleges, have been raised in, 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 in uh, Bible college atmospheres, and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm kind of all alone. He said, let's go out to lunch. We went out to lunch. I was expecting all this wisdom from Dr. Baker, my first English Bible professor. I said, I'm lost. I have no idea what you're talking about. Give me back organic chemistry again. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, would you share with me how you came to know the Lord? And I gave him my personal testimony. He looked at the waitress, called for the check. And he paid the check, looked at me, he said, you'll be fine. Got up and walked away. Man knew something I didn't know at that point. My heart was burning for my God. God was going to work out all those details and bring all that discipline of my college studies to bear on facing the giants. Nothing mundane, nothing mundane exists for the Christian. Everything is there for the purpose of bringing every thought, every thought into the captivity of Christ. Well, that's the preparation of a giant killer. But now the giant killer has to engage the enemy. The next time we're together, I'd like to talk about the rules of engagement. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him.
please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.